My name is Chris Livingstone. I'm a writer and musician, and this is the Hogtown Music Podcast, a show about music and musicians. This show is all about a band called Faith No More. Maybe you've never heard of them, or maybe they're one of your favorite bands. Either way, I think you're going to get something out of this show. So why should you be interested in Faith No More? And why are they worth talking about? Well, they were a hugely influential group who, despite waning popularity in the United States in the latter part of their career, influenced a number of important bands. They paved the way for many other acts that followed in their footsteps, and they were pioneers of a sound that they subsequently kind of turned on, and they're a band of contradictions that looking at the sum of their parts maybe shouldn't have worked at all. That's what makes them interesting. They were also an informative case study in what can be achieved when musicians coalesce around an idea but don't necessarily see eye to eye while they're doing it. In other words, we're going to explore how band dynamics work and how personal conflict and tension can lead to creative success. Now, a few disclosures beforehand. If you listen to the first show, you'll know that I already declared this band as my favourite band of all time. So you might expect my views to be skewed somewhat, maybe in terms of my opinions about their cultural significance. But I'm also going to present some theories about the band that might, to some other fans, be controversial. These are only my opinions, and other people's opinions are available, but not here. I've tried to put some genuine thought into what I'm going to present, and I think it has merit. So first up, you need a little bit of history. Just to get the context of what and who I'm talking about, if you are not familiar with the band. For this episode, I'm going to stick mostly with their better-known songs because generally I think that they best represent the band at their various critical junctures. Faith No More hail from California, half from Los Angeles and half from San Francisco, although they are known as more of a Bay Area band because that's where they got together and that's what became their base. Formed from various other incarnations around 1983, the band consisted of Billy Gould on bass, Mike Borden on drums and Roddy Bottom on keyboards as founding members, with Jim Martin on guitar and Chuck Mosley on vocals joining soon after. Mike Borden, also known as Puffy because of his puffball hairdo, had been at school and was friends with Cliff Burton, the legendary Metallica bass player who died in a 1986 tour bus accident. Cliff introduced Mike to Jim Martin, and they played together in another band, but it didn't work out, mostly because Jim and Puffy didn't like each other at all. They each thought the other was weird, and Puffy described Jim as a fucking dick. Jim, on guitar, was a macho metalhead, a rocker in its most conventional sense, and Puffy, on drums, was more into new wave and punk, but also heavily influenced by Black Sabbath. Billy and Roddy bass and keys respectively, were also very anti-metal. They hated all those rock bands, and they perceived themselves as a fully alternative band. Their influences were Joy Division, The Stranglers, The Sex Pistols and Black Flag with some African drum music thrown into the mix. They all knew Jim, and knew he didn't fit into the band at all. But what they wanted was a thick, crushing guitar sound to go with their thick, crushing rhythm section, and in that respect, a lighter guitar sound just wasn't going to work. They needed someone with a heavy guitar. 
Then there was Chuck, the singer. Not really a singer, more of a vocalist. He was from Los Angeles, an older kid with intermittent flashes of greatness, but a general predisposition to laziness and mind-altering consumables. They put their first album out on Mordem Records, and it was called We Care A Lot. Even this far back, you can hear the beginnings of the development of their sound. You've got the tribal-sounding drums, you've got the low, thick-end bass that hooks into the rhythm, and you've got the keyboards which really alter the sound to something different. Incidentally, the British band Killing Joke was an early influence too. And you can hear that they were really quite alternative. The guitars don't take center stage at all. And then there's Chuck who sings, One day you're thinking that maybe you're feeling better. And you're probably an okay person, if only you had a job. I love that line and it sums up Chuck's complex, part arrogant jerk, part slacker, part inadequate attitude perfectly. So this is the first song I'm going to play and it's called As the Worm Turns.
We Care A Lot has just been remastered and re-released, and if you don't have it, you should get it. I have recently found a new appreciation for it myself. After their debut, the band signed with Slash Records. Again, their sound developed some more, and in 1987, they put out the record Introduce Yourself. Both albums were produced by Matt Wallace. He was really the sixth member of FNM, their George Martin, if you will. And on that record was a re-recording of the song We Care A Lot that was also the album title of the previous record. Confused? A little. Again, the band was continuing to evolve. We can hear the refinement of what would start to become termed as funk metal or rap metal at this point. It was the use of the slap bass and the drum rhythm, with more of a rap style from Chuck and the gradual introduction of the heavier guitars. Don't forget that in those days metal had definitely not branched out. It was defined by the thrash metal scene with the likes of Slayer, Metallica and Anthrax, and the glam scene with Motley Crue, Poison and Warrant. Again, Chuck's lyrics were really about the antithesis of the song title, and the song itself was something of a sarcastic look at songs like We Are The World and their cast of Billboard Top 10 characters. The song We Care A Lot did reasonably well. It captured the mood of the times with its staccato cultural references, and the ever-influential music video channel MTV played it, but mostly late at night. Yeah. 
Chuck Mosley, the band were only ever going to go so far. It doesn't matter that he was pretty odd and generally totally unreliable. The bottom line was that he didn't have a voice that could take the band to where the rest of them could get to, and in that respect, he was limiting. The rest of the band were 100% dedicated to growing as musicians, whereas Chuck couldn't even summon the will to take singing lessons that Billy had paid for. There's an asterisk to this statement. I recently saw Chuck play with the band for the first time at the Troubadour in LA. It was this year, and I actually thought he was completely awesome. He was raw and punk, and suddenly I got him. He was in great form. But in 1988, it wasn't working. And at the end of their second European tour, he was fired. Now, after the album Introduce Yourself was when things really started to get interesting. A new singer, a fresh-faced teenager called Mike Patton, whose band Mr. Bungle had made a demo called The Raging Wrath of the Easter Bunny was recruited. Patton was very, very different to Chuck. He was a good-looking guy with long dark hair and most notably he could actually sing. He was less into punk and more into disco and death metal. But Mike was also different from the rest of the band. He was from the logging town of Eureka in Northern California and about five years younger than the rest of them. The band had already got most of their songs written for the next album and by the time he joined, basically Patton jumped in and wrote just the lyrics and the melodies. But this proved to be a giant step forward. Faith No More were one of the bands that demonstrated how you could combine genres successfully. Not just like, say, Aerosmith and Run DMC, or the more caustic Anthrax and Public Enemy collaboration, who really just sounded like they were forcing a marriage of their respective styles. These guys actually put that together into a consistent sound, and this became a hugely popular concept in the 90s, with the likes of Rage Against the Machine and then all manner of lesser imitators popping up behind them. This in itself grew into new metal, of where there were a select few good groups, maybe System of a Down and some early corn, and this in turn slowly evolved into the mash of styles that we see today. And that lineage can be traced back directly to Faith No More. The real thing was the album that Jim Martin, the band's big, hairy, bearded guitarist, stepped up to the plate. He was a larger-than-life character. He wore two sets of glasses, one black and one red. And he had long black hair and dressed like a biker, with a leather jacket and blue jeans. He almost exclusively listened to a select few metal bands, Sabbath, Zeppelin, probably a bit of Metallica too. And he played a Gibson Flying V with the accompanying stacked martial amps. Ironically, it was Big Sick Ugly Jim that had first heard Mr. Bungle and contacted Patton. The band covered Black Sabbath's War Pigs on the album, clearly a move to curry favour with the metal faithful. Matt Wallace produced again, and the production was big, with big songs. And most of all, they had a radio-friendly, heavily rotated MTV hit in the song Epic. James Hetfield of Metallica regularly wore a Faith No More t-shirt, which was also helpful to them. I don't think you can underestimate how big that was for the band, for legitimizing them with the legions of metal fans that followed Metallica during the 80s. It was during this album 
that the band started to be perceived much less as an alternative band and much more as a metal band. At that point, they all had long hair and generally looked the part too. And the band also embarked on a tour with Metallica, and it seemed like they were, despite all their efforts not to be, rolling firmly down the rock metal genre freeway. When you listen to the song I'm going to play, you can hear the movement forward from We Care A Lot. Still, it's got the slap bass and those distinctive drum patterns, but the guitars are turned right up. And this is the first time that you hear Patton really elevating the rapping to another level, and then adding a full vocal melody to the chorus. Then at the end, you get the almost classical outro played on piano, and it's like a rap rock opera. It's so cool, so hip, it's alright It's so groovy, it's 
Epic was what got me into the band. But like many others, I found that it was the other songs on the album like Surprise You're Dead and Woodpecker from Mars that became my favourites. In 1989, the peers of Faith No More were considered to be Poison and Skid Row and all these other bands that to Faith No More just seemed like a joke. Mike Patton was also a complicated character and after months of touring with the band at a festival, he declared that the drummer from Poison, who were also on the bill, could suck his own dick. Patton was prone to these insults, more for fun than genuine dislike of other people, but they didn't go down very well with the preening pop stars that they were directed at. The band also had a major run-in with Axl Rose. Guns N' Roses had been a big supporter of the group and invited them to tour and support, but Faith No More spent much of their time bad-mouthing GNR, and eventually Axl found out and summoned them for an explanation. Despite all this, the real thing did great. It was a huge commercial success, and the band were nominated for a Grammy and then performed at the MTV Music Awards. And during this time, they toured almost constantly. In 1991, they went back into the studio with Matt Wallace to make a new album. Angel Dust, in my opinion, was the pinnacle of the band's creative powers. The cover and reverse side of the album sum it up perfectly. On the front, a serene heron extending its wings on a calm lake. On the reverse, meat in an abattoir, including the entire head of a cow. High gloss and brutality rolled into one. Angel Dust was the most boundary-extending, innovative albums of the decade. It pushed the envelope of what an alternative band could do. It used samples and multi-layered production to create a grandiose sound. And it was genuinely dark and malevolent, a work of twisted genius. But it was a tough album to make for a number of reasons. The record company wanted another real thing full of radio hits so they could continue to push Mike Patton as a teen pinup. But in the intervening tours, he had completely subverted that image and turned himself into a brooding anti-hero. On Angel Dust, Patton started to wield greater influence and really grew musically. His vocals, melodies and the use of his voice became a lot more complex and he could do more than just rap and sing. He had a huge vocal range and ditched the nasal sound from the prior album. As an example, for years I thought that one song on the album, Crack Hitler, had female backing singers until I finally realised that it was him singing all the parts, mostly in falsetto harmony. He could growl and scream and that opened up the band to far more than they could have ever achieved with Chuck. Funnily enough, Jim Martin didn't think much of Angel Dust. For him, it was a step in the wrong direction. During the production of the album, Jim would come in and record when the rest of the band had left for the day, and for much of it they had to make do with dummy guitar tracks as Jim proved to be somewhat elusive. This frustrated everybody. Roddy, the keyboard player, whose open homosexuality was also pretty novel for the genre that he inhabited, was also experimenting with new sounds and samples. Don't forget that this was 25 years ago, and sampling was still very new back then, and in the alternative rock music world, it was straight up cutting edge. In the song that I'm going to play now, there's a sample of Cecilia by Simon and Garfunkel, 
see if you can hear it. Also check out in the breakdown before the last chorus the descending industrial sounding keyboard tone. That was more reminiscent of the dance scene than anything appearing in rock. And of course, listen to the drum intro for the song. When I first heard it, I was blown away. I'd never heard anything like it before. There's even a little creaking sound in that intro, and somehow I imagined that it was this giant mechanical beast of a drum kit that Puffy was perched upon. The whole album creates within it a consistent atmosphere of swirling madness. It's the culmination of members pulling in different directions, all with distinctive sounds of their own, all forcing their mark on the songs and forcing themselves to be heard. There were so many ways it might not have worked, and if the band dynamics were even slightly skewed, maybe it wouldn't have. But it did. This is Midlife Crisis.
Faith No More have always been a band of contradictions, but for me, Angel Dust is a perfect album from start to finish. All the pieces fit seamlessly together, and there's not a song that I don't like. But things change, and now it was my turn to want the band to put out Angel Dust 2. I didn't want them to change from that template. In my opinion, they'd found the perfect formula. So just make another one of those, I thought. I wished. Angel Dust didn't do as well as the real thing commercially. In Europe and Australia, the band were still huge, but in the States, where audiences and mainstream radio have less time for products that deviate too significantly from the norm, their popularity started to fade. I saw Faith No More at Sheffield Arena in 1992. It was a big venue. Maybe 20 or so thousand people were there. Jim Martin had a huge stack of Marshall amps and his Flying V. It was my first proper concert, and it had an indelible effect on me. But Jim wasn't long for the band at that point, and clearly the other members were getting frustrated by him, and in 1993, he was sacked. At that point, they made a short-term replacement in Dean Mentor, an otherwise plain and boring-looking band tech, and then they finally replaced him for recording the new album with Trey Sperance, Patton's former bandmate in Mr. Bungle. This is the point the band dynamic shifted. By this time, Patton was clearly the star of the show, and he started to exert more of his influence on the band. The band's musical oeuvre became more diverse in terms of sound, and without that big clunking metal fiend of a guitarist keeping them honest on the straight and narrow, they were free to explore all of their other interests. When King for a Day, Fall for a Lifetime came out in 1995, I was super excited to see what would be my next two years of listening material. I crossed my fingers and hoped for more angel dust, and tuned into Radio 1, because that was how it was done back then, for the first preview of the album. I listened to Digging the Grave, the first single. I wanted to really like it, and, it, and if it wasn't Faith No More, I would have enjoyed it immensely. But this was Faith No More, and the bar was set very, very high. I couldn't even bring myself to admit that it wasn't what I had hoped for, but I had had such high hopes for it. The same went for the album. When it came out, I couldn't admit to anyone that I didn't think it wasn't as good as Angel Dust. But to me, something nuanced had shifted. There was just too much pattern in there, and his monkeying around with the sound really came through to me. I wanted that driving rhythm, the big guitar sound and the swirling darkness, but it wasn't quite there, it had changed. Maybe the band were happy with the album. It was the first in their history that wasn't produced by Matt Wallace, and this one was helmed by the very capable Andy Wallace of No Relation. It occurred to me that maybe they were never going to make another Angel Dust. There's plenty of other bands that have only ever put out one truly, truly great album. But the reason I think that Angel Dust was so good was that in it they had discovered the root of their sound, the solid core which allowed the keyboards, the guitars, the vocals, and fundamentally that driving rhythm section to branch out in completely different directions. Here's a song from King for a Day called Evidence. You can hear the completely different sound, and Patton's highly diverse interests that were on display in Mr. Bungle are clearly coming out even if they are more structured.
Here's a funny story about Faith No More. In 1995, I had been kicked out of school, and I was at home figuring out what I was going to do next with my life. The band announced that they were going to play a show at Northampton Roadmenders. Now, the Roadmenders is a pretty small place all in all. It's a club-sized venue. It probably doesn't hold more than seven or 800 people, and I was beyond excited. The day the tickets came out, I called the ticket line over and over until I managed to get four tickets, and I went with three friends to the show, and it was as awesome as I could have imagined. I spent the whole show in the mosh pit and completely forgot about my failing education. Anyway, at some point, probably towards the end of the show, Mike Borden, or Puffy the drummer, threw his drumstick into the crowd. In some unnatural feat of immense coordination and luck, I jumped up and grabbed it mid-air. For a good minute, I tussled with two other guys who lay claim to it, but there was no way that I was going to let that thing go. Now, if you look at a picture of Puffy Borden, you will see that he has very long black dreadlocks. Well, now they're kind of grey, but back in those days, they were black. And Puffy does weird things with his drumsticks too. He cuts them up with a razor so that they're all splintered, and he plays them the wrong way round, so that the thick parts hit his drum skin. I plunged that drumstick down my pants and kept it there safely for the rest of the gig. And when I got home, I pulled it out and gazed at it lovingly. And the best bit, somehow Puffy had snagged one of his hairs on it. I kept that drumstick and the sacred hair for years in my drawer. It was probably ten or so years later, as I was randomly looking at it one day, and the hair that had been lodged in it for a decade, that something occurred to me. I thought back to that night at the show, and remembered forcing that stick down my pants. That wasn't Puffy's hair at all. It was my own hair. I'd been worshipping my own pube for ten years. I peeled the disgusting thing off that drumstick and flushed it down the toilet. In 1997, the band put out Album of the Year. For me, it was a continuation of the same different direction. There are some good songs on there, and it was hyped as something as a return to form for the band. But it was another one where I didn't quite get what I wanted. Maybe it was because I had grown up a bit more and found a bunch of other bands or something. I don't really know, but I always felt that when that classic lineup was broken, that the band lost something fundamental that it never quite captured again. Sure, all of the other guitarists were combatant, but they were closer to the rest of the band in terms of their influences. John Hudson became the band's full-time guitarist after that album came out. He was originally from the band Systems Collapse. But to me, was he enough of a big, sick, ugly contradiction for the music? I believe that the band needed that force pulling against them to truly hit those heights. That said, I've played in a band with a few assholes, and it's not much fun. And who's to say that another album with Big Jim would not have completely sucked anyway? Faith No More were a band that needed to grow and change, and that's exactly what happened. In 1998, the band split up. Mike Patton went to pursue a huge number of side projects. Mr. Bungle, Tomahawk, Patton and Razel, and many more, and started the record label Apicac. Puffy went on to play drums for Ozzy Osbourne, and Chuck and Jim faded into obscurity. Billy started a record label, and Roddy moved to New York to write opera. Here's another small piece of advice, as another digression. In 2011, I saw the band play at the Palladium in Los Angeles. They'd reformed uh, a couple of years before in 2009, 
and by a strange coincidence, another friend of mine had recently figured out that he was an old school of Billy Gould, the bass player, and so had managed to get after-show passes to the show. After the show, the band hung out and chatted with people, and a small crowd gathered around Mike Patton. I hung around the crowd, desperately searching for something to say, without being able to build up the courage to say anything at all. I wanted to say something interesting and insightful, something to ignite a long and deep conversation with my hero, something more than, I love your band, or great show. But what could I say? I had no idea. I had no idea. So I hovered awkwardly while my friend egged me on, which only added to the pressure. Eventually, sensing my moment, I stepped forward and thrust out my hand. I love your band, I said. For a couple of seconds, Mike limply shook my hand. His hand was soft and moist, and wasn't the manly grip that I had expected. What did I expect him to say to me? Hi Chris, I'm so glad we've finally met. This really means so much to me. I've wanted to meet you since you were 14, and now it's finally happened. No. He simply said thanks and turned away. And I don't blame him. I was just another fan, and he's met thousands of them. The lesson I took from that is, sometimes it really is better not to meet your heroes. Keep them on the wall or on the record sleeve where they belong. The band reformed in 2009 and embarked on a couple of world tours, playing their hits to fans all around the world. In 2015, they came back with a really strong album called Soul Invictus. It was a true return to form, both new, innovative, and fitting of the band's legacy. I saw them play at the Warfield in San Francisco and at the Wilton in Los Angeles, and they were as solid live as they had ever been. In 2016, Chuck joined the band for a couple of one-off shows to celebrate the re-release of their first record, and like I said, he completely rocked it. With many years to put all of that into perspective, my conclusion is that my favourite album of all time, Angel Dust, was a one-off. It was a perfect diamond hewn out of dark carbon. It couldn't be, and it shouldn't be, replicated. It was the product of a unique cast of characters at a unique time. It's a demonstration of the alchemy that can take place when conflicting elements are forced together. It's an example of what can happen when musicians are forced to work against the grain of what is comfortable for them, or even unnatural. Thank you for listening to the first Hogtown Music Podcast. My debut novel, Hogtown Book One, is available on Amazon. Connect with me. I would love to hear about your favourite bands, about new bands and bands that you've heard recently. I'm on Twitter at Chris underscore live, Facebook at CJ Livingstone author, and my website is hogtownbook.com. I'll see you in two weeks. Here's the last song. It's off the last album, Sol Invictus, which is now out as a single. It's called Cone of Shame. Enjoy. Thank you.
And the barman calls die. 